The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to introduce Nora Goldstein. Nora is the editor of BioCycle, the magazine for advancing composting, organics recycling, and renewable energy. It is published by the JG Press in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Nora. Hello. Nice to be with you. Well, I am very interested, as you are, in how our country handles waste. And, of course, being a dietitian, my focus has been on food waste largely and how are large institutions as well as the homemaker handling waste. And the fact that your magazine is dedicated month after month to this issue is really quite remarkable. Well, we have been publishing BioCycle since 1960. It was started that year as a journal called Compost Science and was started by my father, Jerry Goldstein, who was editor of Organic Gardening and Farming magazine. And at the time, he saw how composting used for organic gardening and farming of various waste streams to build soil health and conserve the resources applied to other waste streams and at different scales. And for that reason, he started, he started Compost Science to really transfer the knowledge and intuition for sustainable and organic agriculture to the management of municipal, other agricultural, and non-hazardous industrial waste streams like food processing residuals. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you a general question about food waste in particular. I have seen some of the statistics about how much we waste. You know, there's always this big push. We've got to produce more. We've got to produce more to feed all these people. And then there was a very interesting article published. The NIH actually funded the research saying that in the United States alone, we waste 1,400 calories per person per day. And, of course, I've also seen, you know, how many billions of pounds this equates to. And it's also associated with water waste and 300 million barrels of oil per year. If we're going to throw food away, which I hate to see happen, but if we're going to dispose of it, what is the best way to get rid of it? Well, just to give you a statistic that the municipal solid waste industry uses in terms of how we manage our waste today and how much we continue to throw away, by tons, food waste is the largest category of material that is getting thrown away today. And that's been a statistic that the US EPA has published in their annual MSW Facts and Figures report. And by the amount of waste generated after the paper stream, food waste is the second the highest category of waste generated. And like I said, the largest category of amount of waste we throw away. And as far as the best ways to manage the food waste that does end up in the municipal solid waste stream, and by municipal solid waste stream, I'm referencing residential, commercial, and institutional waste generators, 
so restaurants, cafeterias, households, that category, the best way to manage that material, because it's clean when it's generated. In other words, when you're preparing food, you don't mix in all your other garbage with it and then throw it away. It's very clean and neat and tidy, if you will. So if you can keep it separated like that, whether you're a household or a restaurant or a cafeteria, it has a great deal of value. There's energy value in that, and then there's organic matter value in that. So by diverting that material to composting, which is an aerobic way of managing organic residuals, or to anaerobic digestion, which is a a different process that actually purposely captures the energy prior to being able to use that material as to compost it or further process it so it can be applied to soil. Those are the optimum ways once it becomes a waste. But what we're seeing as a trend today is really building awareness of not making the food waste in the first place. So one of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has a fairly new program called the Food Recovery Challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically, they have their own webpage and all sorts of tips on how you can not generate the food waste in the first place. So that's what we call source reduction. And then the next thing is, this isn't so much for households, but for institutions and commercial establishments like restaurants, is to try to recover and donate as much of the prepared food as you can or for grocery stores, food that can be donated ahead of the sell-by date. And then whatever's left over, you want to divert to composting and anaerobic digestion. There's another category that's on the EPA hierarchy of how to manage this material, which is animal feed. While that works in some cases ever since the whole mad cow disease and concerns about that exposure, less post-consumer food waste goes to, post-consumer is what gets scraped off the plate or comes out of the kitchen, your home kitchen, goes for animal feed. So what we still see going to animal feed is more pre-consumer vegetable waste streams. But for the most part, the best ways to manage that if you're a household and you have the ability to do so or the and the inclination to compost it at home, the next best thing as a household is to Try to, if your municipality has a program, to divert it so that it doesn't end up in the landfill. And then for commercial and institutional establishments to try to work with programs where that gets collected and diverted to composting and anaerobic digestion. It's my understanding that most of the food waste that we have in our country does indeed go to landfills. Is that correct? That is correct. BioCycle actually has collected some of that data nationally for a number of years, and by our calculations, about 2% or less of the food waste generated from the municipal solid waste stream does end up being disposed in landfills. A small percent of that, if, if your municipality sends its waste to a combustion plant, an incinerator-type plant, will go there, but the majority of the food waste does, by far, ends up in, in the landfill. Yeah, it's so tragic because, as you mentioned, there's all that energy there and there's all that organic matter that could be returned to the soil. And I'm curious, too, about, and I know that BioCycle covered this topic, I think you did in in one of your editorials, about this idea that, at first, many cities, including my own here in Columbia, disallowed putting 
yard waste into the landfill. And then many communities change their position and they allow the yard waste to go in, the, the grass clippings, for example, and the leaves, because they're tapping methane to use for energy in the communities. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Sure, sure. For any of your listeners who are interested, it's a bit heavy on data and science, but we commissioned a report and published it in May of 2010 called The Landfill Energy Myth. And essentially, it was a state-of-the-knowledge paper based on why throwing organic waste into the landfill is not an effective way to gather the energy that's in the organic stream. And what prompted that was this push that you just mentioned of communities and states that were looking to repeal their bans on putting yard trimmings in the landfill, and they were saying that this energy value of the yard trimmings would be that you could capture that methane from the disposal from the landfill and use it to generate energy. And there's a, a number of fallacies to that argument, one being that especially leaves and wood are very They're mostly cellulose and carbon, and they do not break down rapidly in anaerobic conditions or aerobic. I mean, when you compost them, you've got to shred that material down and then actively mix it with the right balance of nitrogen, just like you do if you're composting at home, in order for that to degrade in a decent amount of time that you can have compost to use. Grass clippings are high in nitrogen, so they do break down, but where this was really being pushed is that you wanted to put the organics in the landfill, including the food waste, so that you can capture the energy. And what was the report that we did, the landfill energy myth report, basically showed that if you purposely put organic waste in the landfill, especially food waste, it breaks down so quickly that it breaks down and emits the methane before that landfill cell is closed and capped. And then that methane is actually directed to that landfill's gas collection system, which typically feeds an electric generating system. So even if you use the argument that putting food waste and yard waste in the landfill is a great way to to capture the energy, uh, purposely do it. And I'll explain why I keep using that word purposely. It just doesn't work that way. And what's interesting is one of the lead researchers that was really pushing that concept of that being a good way to capture methane actually more very recently sort of backed off on that particular approach and more endorsed what the biocycle article endorsed isn't the right word, but their more current research supports the findings of our landfill energy myth report. The reason I use the phrase purposely is that no matter how good of a source separation program you might have, for organic waste, there will always be some that ends up in the landfill or a disposal facility. Paper actually is an organic waste that eventually will break down. So it's important for both the waste in place and for mixed solid waste that gets added to have landfill, you know, landfill gas capture systems. But disposing of it for the intent of generating energy is is not scientifically supported, and you just lose that material as a resource. So if you use anaerobic digestion as a process to capture the energy because it creates biogas, and then that 
is used in turn to make electricity or what we call renewable natural gas, where it's cleaned up to the point it can be injected in the pipeline or compressed and used as vehicle fuel, you still have the solids portion to further treat so that it's stable and used as a soil amendment. So it's a really good way to capture the energy and get the soil amendment, the resource for the soils. Mm-hmm. And then composting is just you skip that energy capture step and go straight you know, to making a soil product, which is also, you know, a great way to manage this material. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Nora Goldstein. She's the editor of BioCycle, which is a terrific magazine for advanced composting, organics recycling, and renewable energy. And we're talking about what do we do with all of our food waste. And we used to have a little dog, actually. The dog got old, and we had to put her to sleep. And now I don't have my use for all of my meat scraps. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I try to be a good planetary citizen, and I have my composting bucket, and I put all of my vegetation, and I put, you know, the things that will break down easily in the garden compost heap. But then I've got the meat scraps, you know, the fat from the bacon or the fat that you trim off from a chicken. And it kills me to throw it away. What is the advice on how to handle that kind of meat waste? Sure. If you're doing home composting, one of the main reasons it's not advised to put that in your home composting bin is typically a backyard composter doesn't get to the temperature level that is necessary to destroy any pathogens that could be in the meat products. And therefore, it's not advised to do that for a household. Really, then, the best way to manage that is hopefully to be in a community where they do a collection of food Mm -hmm. waste and that material goes to a composting facility that is managed to meet those temperatures. But in lieu of that, unfortunately, you do, if you're just a household, to throw it away. For other establishments, grocery stores, commercial kitchens, restaurants, that material can can be used. It traditionally was picked up by renders, which uh, are yes. meat renders who, who would actually process that and capture the value out of the fat and use, sell that as different byproducts. More recently, a lot of that can be processed, I think, into biofuels. It's not my area of expertise, but it is a material that can be added to anaerobic digesters and to composting facilities. And because of its energy value, we're actually seeing anaerobic digesters that are at wastewater treatment plants on farms and ones that are being built sort of standalone, going really wanting the fats, oils, greases, you know, food scraps, because of they have such great energy value that it actually increases the production of the biogas within their facility and doesn't take up a lot of space. So unfortunately for the household that doesn't have any kind of option for residential collection or drop off, there's a couple there's some communities where you can actually take your food scraps to the same place you take your recyclables and, and drop them off as well. But if you don't have that option, unfortunately it does have to be disposed. Or if you have a dog. Right. I've been trying to find neighborhood dogs that I could be, you know, a foster feeder for. But it just kills me to throw things away that I think could have a second use. I know, I know. The only time I ever use a disposer is if it's 
leftovers that have meat in it, and it's too sloppy just to put in my my garbage bag. Right. Um, and other than that, I don't turn it on at all. <laughs> right. Well, the the other issue that I think is so important, and your magazine, your your August edition, did a wonderful job of covering this, is evaluating exposure risk to trace organic chemicals in biosolids. And I start thinking about all of the hazardous compounds that are in our waste and what happens to them. You know, some of them get into our water supply. Some of them get into our soils, the confined animal feeding operations. A lot of that manure is spread on agricultural lands. And, of course, we know that manure contains antibiotic residues, probably antibiotic-resistant bacteria, hormone residue, growth hormone residues, whatever that animal is excreting. And I'm concerned about that. I'm also concerned. I I was at a a show. um, It was a farm meeting. And there was a gentleman who was a contract grower for one of the large poultry companies, agribusinesses, and they were just trying to survive. And what they did was they took their poultry litter and they were selling it as compost. And I thought, well, you know, I asked them, well, have you ever tested this for arsenic? And they hadn't thought about that. What about home gardeners who are looking for compost to put on their gardens? Do you have any tips on what to look for? Sure. Typically, and I'm not the expert at all on the antibiotics piece of that with with manures or just that transfer, but I'm sure there are studies on that. But if you're going to be purchasing compost for use in your home garden, especially your home vegetable garden, there's a the U.S. United States Composting Council, uh, which is the National Association for the composting industry, and similarly, the Compost Council of Canada have quality assurance programs that compost facilities can put their material through that testing, and then if they meet all the criteria in terms of metals and organics that are regulated, they will get that seal of, for the U.S., it's the seal of testing assurance. For Canada, it's the, I think it's the quality assurance label, and that is what we like to say is a slam dunk, whether you're buying if they're bagging product or if you're buying it in bulk, you know, you're you're just starting your garden out and you want to do a big load of compost to it or your flower gardens or whatever. If it's not an SDA-approved compost, and that goes for manure compost, biosolids compost, yard trimmings compost, blends of all that, it covers all those materials, if you're looking at a biosolids compost, for example, that material, that processor, the producer of the compost is a regulated facility under the US EPA, what we call the Part 503 regulations. And to have a compost that gets distributed, which is a, it falls under the exceptional quality Class A material under the regulations, it has to meet all the pathogen requirements and meet the metals and contam- pollutant, the primary organic pollutant levels that that material is regulated for. Manure does not fall under the EPA regulations, not even the ones that are, are regulated under the CAFO rules that EPA has. And so really what you want to do in those instances is make sure that the that the composter who's providing this material they should be a regulated facility unless it's a small-scale farm composter 
and learn about their composting practices. Are they reaching the temperatures that are required to kill pathogens? Are they curing that material so that it's stable and that sort of thing? But to get to the issues that you ask about the toxic organic compounds and the antibiotics, what the article you referenced in August looked at the availability of those in the solid portion of municipal wastewater and what the very exhaustive view of the literature found that for most of those materials, they do not get taken up by plants and therefore the pathway of exposure is not going to come from that processed waste material. What the article in August was very alarming about is that many of those constituents of concern are actually in all the consumer and personal care products that we use. And so the level of exposure, that article talked about the dust in the household. Mm-hmm. And that's alarming. Yes, it is. those companies, consumer product companies, are not held to the same level of producer responsibility that a composter is, for example, or a wastewater treatment plant. So the thing with the composting community is that it benefits you to be regulated, to participate in those quality assurance programs because that builds consumer confidence in your product. The worst thing that can happen to a composter, and this isn't so much on the metals contaminant side but on the product stability, mm-hmm. is if you buy some of their compost and it kills your plants. Right. That that spreads like wildfire in the community. So there's a lot of pride in the compost product, and really most composters, and we've been writing about them for over 53 years, are happy to share how they make that product, what goes into that product, the analysis of the product. They shouldn't have anything to hide. What we find, even with the biosolids composting sites, is we did a survey at the end of 2010, and when we asked about their markets, the the residents in the community love it. They know what's in it. They know how it grows their their plants, their helps their lawns, their roses. Some do use it. It's not illegal to use it in vegetable gardens. That is a personal preference if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little unique in the composting world versus the direct manure land application world. Mm-hmm. So for a consumer then who is going out and buying a bag of compost, looking for that seal of testing assurance, that STA approved, is kind of like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Yes. Okay. That's good to know. I don't know if you want to get into the topic of biochar. One of our columnists is, she's not opposed to, she's a soil scientist, and she's there's no, no reason to be opposed to biochar because it does add carbon to the soils and it can sequester carbon. It's similar to what I was saying earlier in in this interview about purposely throwing away organics to capture the energy. To produce a biochar for biochar, you have to burn materials or heat them via pyrolysis or somehow thermally with energy produce that char. And if there's uh, and then you're left with the char and the ash and you get some energy out of it. If that's all you got in your community or if you have a woody biomass plant that's generating power in, in your community, that's definitely go for it. But to purposely produce char 
from a material that has multiple uses and can then end up in the soil as a carbon addition with nutrients in many cases. That's, I would say that's our position. We had this article a couple issues ago by a, a group in Seattle that is Oh, I can't think of the name of it right yes, now. It, it, but, was, uh, it was also in the August 2011 issue. Okay, yep. exactly. And the, that article evolved from uh, that group being a little offended by, you know, what, what our columnists had written about biochar and their their program. And we invited them to write an article about the benefits. And, and I thought they did a really good job. And we're happy to send it to any of your listeners who are interested in that topic. Any of the articles I've discussed, all they need to do is, is get in touch with us and we're happy to, to send them well, uh, the copies of the magazine. I should also let our listeners know that you've got a tremendous website and many of the articles, while some of them do require a subscription, you've just got enough free information on there to whet everyone's appetite for more. Absolutely. So you can glean some terrific information from the items, the appetizers that you give us on the website. So we have two minutes left, and I I knew our time would fly, and I'm going to have to have you back, but is there something that I neglected to ask you that is burning that you'd like to give our listeners? Sure. The, the one thing that has become something I try to talk about in every presentation we give and in every interview is that it's really important in your community to look at the resources that currently are being wasted and how they can be turned into to soil products, energy products that can actually benefit that not landfilling the waste can build healthy soils. And the best example is the urban community agriculture farms. One of the biggest problems with water quality, water quality these days are the storm events where you get so much water coming down and it just runs across the surface because we've paved so much or our soils are of such poor quality it doesn't infiltrate. So if you were to divert that food waste and yard trimmings from the landfill and make compost or make energy first, then make compost, and then use that compost to convert vacant lots and use it on soils to grow food, not only are you getting the local food and food access, but you're also assisting with stormwater management in your community because now the water, when it comes down in that area, is actually going into the ground and not becoming polluted surface water runoff. So what we, we call that integrated benefits. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about waste management. It's really about sustainable communities. And, and if I had no other message to leave us with because we're not allowed to talk about climate change because that's, you know, doesn't exist in some books. The point is, Whatever you want to call it, we can't afford to throw our resources away. That is a great message to end our conversation with, and I promise to have you back because you're so fascinating. We've been speaking with Nora Goldstein, who is the editor of BioCycle, the magazine for advancing composting, organics recycling, and renewable energy. And I would let our listeners know that the website, www.biocycle.net, is a treasure trove for this kind of information. I want to close by reminding our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Nora, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I look forward to being on the show again and hearing from your listeners. 
Thank you.